and the defamation of writer E. Jean Carroll. CNN's Caitlin Collins asked Trump whether he believes the verdict will deter women from voting for him. Trump said no and then interrupted himself to share something. Profoundly irresponsible, Ocasio-Cortez rips atrocious Trump town hall. Truly stomach turning. What kind of a woman meets somebody and brings and the defamation of writer E. Jean Carroll. CNN's Caitlin Collins asked Trump whether he believes the verdict will deter women from voting for him. Trump said no and then interrupted himself to share something truly stomach turning. What kind of a woman meets somebody and brings him up and within minutes you're playing hanky panky in a dressing room, okay? <laughs> They found that they, they found her. What? Say what they, they did. They said he didn't rape her. And they didn't I didn't do anything either. else either. You know what? Because I have no idea who the hell she is. But Mr. President, I don't know can, who I, this woman can I ask you, given your recounting I don't your know version, who, and, and I tell you this. But Mr. President, are you ready? Can I, can I, and I can swear I ask on my children, which I never do, I have no idea who this woman This is a fake story. I have no idea who the hell. She's a Mr. whack President, job. You, you did not tell. In the hours since he was found liable for sexual abuse and defamation, Trump has not missed a chance to deny any of this. He's even used the same sort of language that prompted this defamation case. He still claims he doesn't know E. Jean Carroll. He is still claiming her that she is a liar and the case against him is a witch hunt. And he did that all tonight, too, as a presidential candidate. And he did it in front of a room of Republican voters who laughed. Joining us now is Democratic New York Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, it's a real honor and a pleasure to have you here tonight. I'm sorry that this is what we have to be talking about. Um, Yesterday, when that verdict was read, I think a lot of people felt like there was real progress in American society for victims of sexual assault. Today, listening to the howls of laughter as the former president of the United States made fun of a woman that he was found criminally liable for sexually assaulting to howls of laughter uh, in the room. It felt like something far worse than backsliding or regression. I'm not sure what to call it. I wonder what you make of where we are as a culture. Well, you know, I think even yesterday what we saw was the profound courage uh, and sacrifice that a survivor like Eugene Carroll makes and survivors across the country make many who often go unrecognized in the courageous act of coming forward um, to tell their story of an assault. And I think what we saw tonight is a continued demonstration of the sacrifice that women and survivors of sexual abuse across the country of all genders experience and the sacrifices that they make in order to come forward and challenge power. And what we also saw tonight was the consequence of doing that. They sacrificed their anonymity, they sacrificed their safety, and they sacrifice all of this because we continue to live in a society where an overwhelming amount of structures allow this abuse to happen and find it permissible. Uh, You know, I I know you said earlier that you will not comment on the platforming of um, such atrocious disinformation, but I, I would. I think it was a profoundly irresponsible decision. I don't think that it would I would be doing my job if I did not say that. Um, And what we saw tonight was a series of extremely irresponsible decisions that put a sexual abuse victim at risk, that 
put that person at risk in front of a national audience, and I could not have disagreed with it more. It was shameful. Um, I think a lot of people are going to echo those points in the coming hours and days. The, the behavior of the president was, um, which, you know, our expectations for it, I think, collectively are fairly low, uh, but he exceeded uh, even those low expectations. I, I have to ask you how you felt about and how you feel about the revisionism around January 6th. We have heard four months now that January 6th rioters, insurrectionists, uh, there to steal an election yeah. are heroes, people who have been treated badly, people who deserve better conditions because they're being treated like, quote unquote, hell. The president, former president, echoed that and suggested he might pardon all, many, if not all of them. You survived January 6th, and I believe you, you said it felt like you were going to die. I think it's really important in this moment to champion the voices of victims. And as someone who is a victim that day, how does this all feel to you? How does this narrative feel to you? You know, I, I made a statement about two weeks ago. And in that statement, I stated that January 6th was just a dress rehearsal. For Hi, Mr. Feet. You got a problem huh. with that, huh? Step up if you what got happened? a problem with that. Come on, let's go. Shit. They don't want you to hear those. Rachel Maddow's fantastic podcast, Rachel Maddow Presents Ultra, just won the 2023 Hillman Prize for Broadcast Journalism last night. The podcast oh. explores the long-forgotten seditious conspiracy in the lead-up to World War II, the plot to overthrow the U.S. government. Rachel is, of course, the host of MSNBC's Rachel Matter Show, and she joins me now. Rachel, congratulations on the well-deserved award. I was walking uh, with a, a journalist I know today who was just apropos of nothing raving about Ultra, and we just talked about it for oh, about fully nice. 15 minutes about how great it was and how relevant it is precisely because... The seditious conspiracy trial that appears in your podcast ends up not being successful, unlike the three the government has managed to win so far. It is remarkable. I mean, so Ultra, weirdly, the timing on it was strange. We launched Ultra, the podcast, right when the seditious, tri seditious conspiracy trial started against the Oath Keepers. We finished launching the podcast. The final episode came out when the first verdict came out in the first seditious conspiracy trial. You could have knocked me over with a feather if you had told me before the conclusion of those trials that we would have three successful sedition prosecutions by the Justice Department around January 6th. I mean, sedition is really really hard to prove and for good reason you know i mean right as americans it is it is it is legal for us to say terrible things and believe it is terrible legal. things yes exactly and believe terrible yes. things and even to advocate for politically yes. terrible things we can be awful people yeah. who want to awful things to happen we have those rights under the constitution and god bless us for it but that means a sedition prosecution is 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 all but impossible i mean in 2012 in michigan Right in, in 1988 at the Fort Smith sedition trial, which is a big white power trial. In 1944, which was the one in Ultra of all the Nazis and fascists. All the sedition trials almost always fail. Um, and yet the Justice Department has in for multiple, now two different pro-Trump right-wing paramilitary oh, groups, multiple trials has been able to get conviction after conviction after conviction. And that is 
important about the work of the Justice Department. I think it's important also in terms of the work of what Donald Trump is trying to do and how. And I think it is going to change what's possible for him in terms of what he's trying to do to the country going forward. So I want to follow up on that. But but first, as you were saying that, something struck me that's important. Part of the experience the last eight years is a sort of feeling of of gaslighting and sort of fabric of reality being torn apart and a lot of whataboutism when you just say simply state simple and clear and obvious facts. And one of the things I think that's been really interesting about those three seditious conspiracy trials and then the verdict uh, from the jury in the civil trial for sexual abuse and defamation rendered against Donald Trump this week is that, you know, there's no, like, referees in our lives. There's no, there's no teacher. There's no principal you appeal to. Like, there's no one to be like, is this true or false? It's like, what we have at the highest level of process is that you go before a jury and you make arguments and you introduce evidence. <laughs> These people debate, and then they come back and they say, like, this is the way it is. This is what happened, and this is the way it is. And it, there is something reassuring in both of these cases to have some grounding amidst the madness of the gaslighting and all that that, that that I have personally found important in a sort of civic sense. Yes, and it's, it's why in the Trump era of American right-wing politics, people like you and I and lots of people watching us right now feel like we've become fake lawyers, right? Like, neither you or I are lawyers. Like, we both know lots of lawyers. You're married to a very, very good one. But, like, we've all had to become sort of minor experts in criminal and, to a lesser degree, civil procedure. Um, Because the courts are, for all their failings, they are a place in which you must provide facts to back up your assertions. They are tested in a rigorous adversarial process. There is a judge and often a jury who are further going to test those assertions. And you can't just say stuff um, without being held accountable for the consequences of those words. And that's not true in public life the way that it is true in the courtroom. Um, And so it means the courts have been really, really important. And the courts can't do everything. But when they've shown that they can do really difficult stuff, like sedition prosecutions, I think it does matter, right? I mean, if you are running an authoritarian movement, you are trying to replace democracy. And part of the way that you do that is by using force. You use force to try to get what you want to stop the certification of the vote, say. But it's mostly to intimidate normal people out of participating in normal politics. It's to make the political environment scary, violent, intimidating, overwhelming, make it feel like it's not for you, so that space can instead be flooded by the authoritarian force. These seditious conspiracy convictions at multiple trials make it harder for Trump to organize that. And it doesn't mean that he goes to jail for it. The violence is not by him. It's for him. And we don't know how that's going to be prosecuted, if at all. We'll see what Jack Smith has to say. But it does take away an important tool for his overall project. Well, and this is this is why I actually think, you know, I I don't have access to the the facts that, that Jack Smith's, you know, investigators do. We do have access to a lot of facts. There's a January 6th committee report. There's like the day of January 6th. You and I were, you know, covering it live on television. This was not totally done in secret. The man got in front of the circle and said, like, march with me down the Capitol. And, and, and I honestly feel at this point him facing trial for his involvement, I don't know what specifically which, which of the, the, you know, parts of the criminal code, there were four recommendations January 6th. It's like the highest level of process that we could, again, produce, right? It's like, let's have it out 
as an almost existential democratic question. Like, did this man do this thing? <laughs> in, in the one place that we could have, you know, we have laws of essence, we have a jury, we have all that stuff. It feels necessary civically to me to that. If it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. But that's, I think, why I want it. Not because I want him to go to jail, not because I want the catharsis, not because, I because for a civic reasons, that's the thing we can do. To your point about where these disputes end up, about what are the facts of the matter, who did what, and are they blameworthy? Yes, and getting the facts about what happened right is still an ongoing process. I mean, I know you're going to talk about right. Senator Tupperville with uh, Jamel Bowie later on. I'm really looking forward to hearing that. I mean, part of what t Senator Tupperville t said in that interview where he said that the Biden administration shouldn't be trying to run white nationalists out of the military, um, part of what he said was that it was, you know, I think his phrase was something like there were 100 people who came in through doors that ought to have been locked. Something to that effect. And that's what went wrong on January 6th. I mean, he was there. That was his right. first day at work. And he was, he's, he's still trying to sell this just fiction of what happened there. And that's important. But I, 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 I think you're, what your sort of words of caution about like, don't do this for catharsis. Don't do this because right. this is a like a an ejector button in terms of this problem on the American right is really important. I mean, bottom line here, let's say Donald Trump is convicted of something that, you know, like Stuart Rhodes, puts him in jail for 25 years, whatever it is, like whatever the worst thing is that you can imagine that the criminal justice system can do to him. None of that would disqualify him from running for president. You can run for president from prison, so arguably you can win the presidential Duh. election from prison, and then try to pardon yourself. And yeah. with this Supreme Court, who's to say you wouldn't get away with it? There's no eject button for yeah. solving this. It is about accountability, and we hope it is political accountability and people souring on this idea. Um, but the truth is a prerequisite. And taking away the tools that he can use where other people commit, other people commit crimes on his behalf, that helps. But it all has to be done at once. Yeah, the Eugene Debs uh, uh, tested the first part of that constitutionally, running from president. He didn't test the second because he didn't he didn't win on the Socialist Party uh, line. So we, that that is remains a sort of a question mark. You just mentioned I 100% agree. It was a great thing about Ultra too, of just like the sort of different parts of what we call civil society, right? That the law isn't some, there's no civil bullet, there's no panacea, like for what makes a democracy work, it's sort of endless toil and, and, and effort by citizens to keep a democracy a democracy, but law is one component, but not the only one. And I mentioned Eugene Carroll before, but I, you know, to me, this is a perfect example, right? It's not like the Eugene Carroll verdict comes back and it's like, well, that's it, he's done. <laughs> You know, like, it probably means nothing to Republican primary voters. And yet, but, it still really matters that that, that yeah. happened. And I, I haven't, I'm just curious, I haven't gotten a chance to talk to you since that verdict came down, um, what your reaction was to it. Well, um, well, I'll just tell you, I mean, first of all, I just think, like, when the, the history of this era is written, uh, there are going to now be multiple chapters about Robbie Kaplan yeah, as a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> Given, I mean, just in terms of the, the 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 lawyering here and the advocacy here, and the.
and four two thousand. DOJ five one four two thousand. Okay, I said he must be disqualified now under 14th Amendment. Trump and the 160 other GOP traitors. Robbie, must what else, Robbie Kaplan? Has all be removed from office now. Everybody called DOJ 202-514-2000. Done within the past 10 mm -hmm. years. Like, it's just, it's an, it's going to be an important part of this moment in, in U.S. history. It is part of it. Um, but I, I do think that you're right about, I mean, the, the pain and the, 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 the trial, for lack of a better term, that Eugene Carroll went through here in order to relive this, be attacked for it, put herself out there, go through this entire process, go through that incredibly difficult adversarial process with Mr. Takapina, Trump's lawyer. The point of it was to be heard, to have her claims tested yes. in a way that is factually based and evidentiary based um, under a fair process that is transparent and everybody can see and to get the truth known. And that is the fundamental basis of moving forward in a democracy um, that requires us to, move, to, to behave constructively and to live in a shared reality. And her bravery in putting herself through that did something for the country in terms of establishing a truth there that, yeah, you can spit at it and you can pretend it didn't happen, but all fair-minded people will recognize that it did and will know that that jury did its job. And that is... That is a service to the country uh, in a way that she paid for personally, and I think it's I think it's 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 sad that it had to be so painful, and I think it is commendable in terms of I think what is the patriotic impulse behind it. Trump like his style, like his personality, but there were others there um, that sat 
you know, again, bewildered or absolutely disgusted to hear him talk about uh, January 6th, to hear, hear him talk about uh, the, the libel case. Some of this was very unfamiliar verbiage uh, to the crowd, and, and, and I don't think they knew what to actually make of it. I just want to make sure, and I really, really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing this, because I think it's actually a really important perspective. As someone who makes TV, I know that sometimes what the camera is capturing and what the room is like are, are, are a little distant, but I just want to make sure that you're not projecting how you were feeling when you said like people were disgusting, like you disgusting, like you're seeing that on people's faces, right? That you 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 can feel that actually. That's not just how you felt. Yeah, and just to be clear, I was an appointee at the State Department under right, President yeah. Trump, and proud of the work I did. I resigned on January sixth, right behind uh, you know the, the the Capitol here, walking home, and, and I remember seeing vividly seeing it filled um, with what I thought was an absolute disgrace. Now I've heard other Republicans talk about you know some conspiracy theories as to this was a, a, a an organized effort or this was this was Antifa. I've never heard anyone refer to it as a beautiful day. And I was mere feet from the president um, hearing him talk about that. A day where I um, you know, resigned, I thought it was an absolute disgrace. I thought it was disgusting. And um, you know, I'm just happy to say that the entire room did not feel that way. Um, Jennifer, I, again, I'm not the messenger here, but I am invested in Why this because I actually him? think it's very important for the country, particularly because he really does seem to be running on a campaign of like, I'm going to finish the job from January 6th. It seems to me that the best argument here is, more than move on, it's that he's a loser who lost and he's going to lose again. And the thing that the, that ties together is, is confronting the reality of the fact that he lost to Joe Biden, a person that I think most Republican primary voters view uh, as, as, as sort of incompetent and too old and it's ridiculous that th that is the guy that he lost to. It does seem to me the message here to drive home more than anything is he's a loser who lost and will lose again. Right, a three-time loser who lost and is guaranteed to lose again in the general election. You know, I, I listened carefully to the numbers that you were quoting at, in the opening there, Chris, and, and what we're missing, what we're, we're sort of, you know, not remembering maybe, I was there in 2016. The President uh, Trump only won about 30, 33 right. percent yep. maybe of the primary vote in New Hampshire, in that, and that's all he needs to win continuously to get the nomination right. as long as it's the field is as crowded as it's going to be now. So you want you you want us to be able to convince primary voters, Republican primary voters, so that he doesn't end up being the nominee again. The problem is there are already too many people in the race, in the primary race, number one. And number two, that 30, 33% are going to stay with him. And as this primary unfolds... Hold on, I'm going to write a comment. Same comment. be removed under the 14th Amendment now.
up in the rest of the 160 or so GOP traders who incited the insurrection must all be removed immediately from office. It's going to, in my opinion, my very strong opinion, yeah. it's going to go in the other direction. How are you, Trista? He's going to pick up more votes, not lose them. So, what you're talking here, How I just want to be that? clear, I'm going to come back to you in a second, Matthew, just like the delegate rapist, map, which is, which is different in the RNC than it is in the DNC, so it's a, it's a winner-take-all system, they haven't changed Why that, right? So, if you win by, you know, a percentage point, you take all the delegates from that terrorist. state, so you can run the board with, it's you know, if there's weird. enough candidates, and you're running against them 31%, 32%, state after state after state, you're not taking that proportional share of delegates, you're actually taking the whole state, which is the way you can springboard from 30 32% against a crowded field to the nomination. But the delegate math aside, my, my question to you is like, what is your characterization, just of the group of the folks that you know that are Republican conservative voters in New Hampshire, mm -hmm. of like the locked in, no way, hell or high water, they will vote for Trump and the non-that? You're asking yeah, me. I think that's a, Jennifer, let me go to you and then, and then you, Matthew. Sure. So, so uh, I mean, here, here's what I think about the the Republican primary voters in New Hampshire. Um, and again, I'm going to go back to one of the numbers that you used. Uh, you know, the idea that there could there are almost 40 percent of Republican primary voters who say um, that they'd rather not see Donald Trump be the nominee. But the question that you're not asking them is, if he is, will you vote for well, him? Sure. Are you yes. going to stand behind him? But. But the reason that, that that matters so much is you just have to understand that's the mindset of, pri of the GOP primary voters down the aisle, right. across the spectrum. Yes. They are going to be all in for Trump if he yes. ends up as the nominee. Oh. How sick is America? How is it possible? Four corporations own all of our Get off your ass.
blame the media for corporations own all of our media. How is it possible that people would still vote for this convicted rapist, terrorist, and traitor like we have never seen? Wake up, America. Disqualify them all from office now. They are all traitors and terrorists. Demand. They are charged with treason. Um... Okay, so it says, how sick is America? Blame the media. Four corporations own all of our media. How is it possible that people would still vote for this convicted rapist, terrorist, and traitor like we have never seen? Wake up, America. Disqualify them all from office now. Read the Constitution. 14th Amendment says no insurrectionists may hold office. They're all traitors and terrorists. Demand they are charged with treason and terrorism. Get off your ass, America. There's fucking lazy shit. We're not paying attention. What the room is like are, are, are a little distant, but I just want to make sure that you're not projecting how you were feeling when you said like people were disgusting. Like you disgusting, like you're seeing out of people's faces, right? That you 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 could feel that actually. That's not just how you felt. Yeah, and just to be clear, I was an appointee at the State Department under right. President Trump, and proud of the work I did. I resigned on January sixth, right behind uh, you know the the, the Capitol here, walking home, and, and I remember seeing vividly seeing it. filled um, with what I thought was an absolute disgrace. Now, I've heard other Republicans talk about, you know, some conspiracy theories as to this was a, a, a an organized effort. Or this, was, this was Antifa. I've never heard anyone refer to it as a beautiful day. And I was mere feet from the president um, hearing him talk about that. A day where I, um, you know, resigned. I thought it was an absolute disgrace. I thought it was disgusting. And, um, you know, I'm just happy to say that the entire room did not feel that way. Um, Jennifer, I, again, I'm not the messenger here, but I am invested in this because I actually think it's very important for the country, particularly because he really does seem to be running on a campaign of, like, I'm going to finish the job from January 6th. It seems to me that the best argument here is, more than move on, it's that he's a loser who lost and he's going to lose again. And the thing that th that ties together is is confronting the reality of the fact that he, he lost, lost last to Joe time, Biden, 3 million votes in 2016. Most Republican primary voters view... Uh, as, as as sort of incompetent and too old and it's ridiculous that 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 is the guy that he lost to. It does seem to me the message here to drive home more than anything is he's a loser who lost and will lose again. Right, a three-time loser who lost and is guaranteed to lose again. 
in the general election. You know, I, I he ain't gonna get to there. The He's gonna be fucking disqualified in and and what we're and locked up. sort of, you know, not remembering, maybe. I was there in 2016. We've down with the Russians. Lock Trump up! Lock Trump up! Lock Trump up! Lock Trump up! Even down with the Russians, now we know what's up. If you believe in justice, lock Trump up! Lock Trump up!
you know, a percentage point, you take all the delegates from that state. So you can run the board with, you know, if there's enough candidates, and you're running against them 31%, 32%. Need to get rid of the electoral state. college so it's not stolen away from us again. State, which is the way you could springboard from 30, 32% against a crowded field to the nomination. But the delegate math aside. My, my question to you is like, what is your characterization, just of the group of the folks that you know that are Republican, conservative voters in New Hampshire, of like the locked in, no way, hell or high water, they will vote for Trump and the non-that? You're asking yeah, me, I think that's right. Jennifer, let me go to you and then, and then you, Matthew. Sure. So, so uh, I mean, here's what I think about the, the Republican primary voters in New Hampshire. Um, and again, I'm going to go back to one of the numbers that you used, uh, you know, the idea that there could there are almost 40% of Republican primary voters who say um, that they'd rather not see Donald Trump be the nominee. But the question that you're not asking them is, if he is, will you vote for well, him? Sure. Are you going to stand behind him? But, but the reason that, that that matters so much is you just have to understand that's the mindset of, pri of the GOP primary voters down the aisle, right. across the spectrum. Yeah. They are going to be all in for Trump if he yes. ends up as the nominee. Oh. Human condition. Says to Trump opponents. Good evening from New York. I'm Chris Hayes, and there are not a lot of things that Americans are united on across our vast political divides that you could get a big All majority of Americans Hayes. agree on. But a pretty big majority of us agree that Donald Trump is not very likable and that Donald Trump <laughs> is a loser. <laughs> and the reason I'm starting off with those very obvious facts tonight is because Donald Trump and his supporters are trying to con us into forgetting that. <laughs> and that persistent effort is part of what was so galling about the ex-president's town hall earlier this week. The truly awful... Insurrection. I'm also trying to gaslight us about the insurrection. Five, one, four. Congress. 
disqualified immediately from office under whoops under 14th amendment Well, it was not just that Donald Trump was given 70 minutes of national airtime to say whatever he wanted. It was the setting in which he did it. The town hall was presented to America with an audience that whooped and hollered and laughed at every deranged thing that came out of his mouth. It appeared to be unanimously supportive group. And that is part of the con job that CNN was complicit in on Wednesday. In fact, according to a Republican political consultant who was at the town hall, the network encouraged that behavior. Quote, the floor manager came out ahead of time and said, please do not boo, please be respectful. You're allowed to applaud. Now, I have to say, as someone who's worked with live audiences, quite a bit, actually, that kind of direction, when we're doing like a live show, is accepted and sensible when you're doing a normal show, right? But that's not what this was. This was presented as a town hall with a presidential candidate, as if it were an actual forum in an organic setting with real unfettered reaction. And at least from the perspective of the Republican in the audience, what was portrayed on air did not reflect the reality in the room. Quote, there were plenty of people in that room that were ardent supporters of President Trump, and no matter what he said, they were ready to jump out of their seats and applaud. But there were also people that sat there quietly disgusted or bewildered. In a TV setting, you hear their applause, you don't see the disgust. So Trump did not have the entire room on his side. Make no mistake, even if it certainly came across that way on TV. Those observations are backed up by the data that we have. While Donald Trump still has a lot of support within the Republican Party, it is not unshakable. Another Trump nomination, another Trump presidential candidacy, is not inevitable. Yes, he is the front-runner to win the nomination with a current polling average of 52%, far ahead of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis or any other challenger. Yes, he appears to be the strongest candidate at the moment. There's no question. A majority of Republicans do remain really disconcertingly trapped in Trump's alternate universe of delusion and lies, particularly about the 2020 election. Fully 63% of Republicans and Republican-leaning independents say that Joe Biden did not legitimately win. But, but, and here's the big but, and this is key when we're looking at numbers like that, right? The other part of that, the nearly 40% of that same group, they do think the election was legitimate. That is something to work with. That's a big chunk of people. That translates to tens of Almost millions ten. of potential voters, Republicans and those who lean that way, who see through what has become the foundational big lie of Donald Trump and his candidacy. And that chunk of people, that 37%, is also evidence it's way too soon for Republicans, conservatives, and everyone else to throw in the towel and give up, to resign themselves to another Trump win in the Republican primary and not actually go out and make the argument against him. During that town hall, uh, while we were doing our show here the other night, I had on my dear friend uh, Rachel Maddow. And we were talking about this very topic, which is that democracy requires making arguments to people, persuading people, communicating with them, mobilizing them. There is an argument to make to Republican primary voters that Donald Trump is stuck in the past. He's a loser who can't move on from his loss and his lie about the 2020 election. And as the data show, there is a receptive audience for that. We also heard it from several Republican primary voters in a focus group that CNN, to their credit, convened after the town hall. 
I think it's time to move on from the election, the 2020 election. I'd like him to move on. I would like him to stop talking about it. I don't think anybody wants to hear about 2020 at this point. Everybody wants to hear about 2024, the future, and what comes after that. Personally, I'm getting tired of hearing about it. I'm very much more so interested in the problems that we face now. I definitely do think he believes it. I think he's very passionate about it. Um, I guess he probably wouldn't still be talking about it, but I think that it's time for him to move on. He needs to talk about what he's going to accomplish in 2024. Now, let me be clear here, okay? Given where I'm coming from, my is going to be disqualified. Personal politics. Personally, I think that let's move on is insufficient as an argument against Donald Trump. But what it is, crucially, is an opening. In politics, you have to find those kinds of openings, and then you wedge yourself in, and you push them out wider. That's the job for anyone who wants to win back the Republican Party from Donald Trump. I can't do it. Believe me, I wish I could, but Republican primary voters are not going to listen to me. Maybe some of them, maybe some of you are watching right now, and I'm glad you are, but in the main... The people who want the Republican nomination, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, and whoever else can declare, they're the ones who need to make this argument. Former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, who is running for the Republican presidential nomination, is, to his tremendous credit, one of the very few starting to hit that message. So, you know going after him is like walking into a buzzsaw. Why are you doing it? Well, because it's important. What America does not want is another repeat of 2020, where we have Joe Biden and Donald Trump running against each other. We've also heard it from potential 2024 candidate Chris Christie, who referred to Trump as, quote, a child for fixating 2020, and Chris Sununu, governor of New Hampshire, who called him a loser and said he is tired of losing. So clearly, some Republicans are catching on. But I gotta say, there's a strange sort of fatalism creeping into the national conversation about Donald Trump that, that everyone should sort of throw in the towel and give up. And what that means to me, honestly, is give up, give up on our fellow citizens. I said I am presidential candidate 2024 and I call for Trump. Trump. Shit clown. People that we share the country with as, as democratic equals, right? All be democratic equals. And I gotta say, it certainly seems like the Republican establishment has even more cynical views of their primary voters than I do. But the door is not closed. I mean, maybe it will be at some point. And maybe Donald Trump wins the nomination. Perfectly plausible and maybe even likely. But it's not inevitable. The future is unwritten. People who want him not to be the nominee need to get up and make the case to their own voters. Get out there. Democracy depends on Human condition. 
Um, Eugene Carroll may sue Trump again here. What legal expert thinks? I said, yeah, immediately. New tonight, a lawyer for E. Jean Carroll saying the writer may sue Trump again for comments he made during last night's CNN town hall, mocking her claim that he raped her in a Manhattan department store in the mid-1990s. I never met this woman. I never saw this woman. This woman said, I met her at the front door of Bergdorf Goodwin, which I rarely go into other than for a couple of charities. This is a fake story, made-up story. Attorney for Carroll telling the New York Times everything's on the table, obviously, and we have to give serious consideration to suing Trump again. It comes as Trump officially filed his appeal in the $5 million jury decision that found that he sexually abused and defamed Carroll. Up front now, Ryan Goodman, co-editor-in-chief of Just Security, uh, also former special counsel of the Defense Department. So, Ryan, let's start there. Uh, these, these comments we just played from Trump. They match almost identically with his social media posts in October 2022, right? Jean Carroll. to sue him again. Actually, it will be easier this time. According to my touch lawyers.
I would say nail him. Let's see. Share it on my just a degenerate page. Almost identically, but that is very significant because that <clears throat> pose is a pose that the jury found to be defamatory in this case. Quote, I don't know, this woman have no idea who she is. She completely made up a story. So uh, do you think she could win another defamation case? Absolutely. <laughs> because it is a kind of a replica of what he said before. The jury has already found unanimously that that was defamatory. And in fact, she could actually walk into the court and say, part of this has already been decided between these two parties. There's already a unanimous verdict that I was telling the truth about the sexual assault and what he did was maliciously defaming me. And here he has done it again. Right, so she could absolutely do it. Now, I guess the big question is, will she? I mean, she already has a victory. She's got $5 million. You know, it's a very personal choice as to whether or not she wants to do it and put herself through mm -hmm. another trial, but she might be able to I'm convince the judge that, as I mentioned, in a certain sense, some of these issues have already been decided, so she does not have to go through the rigor again of It'll going go through what happens to her that will already be established, and then she can just go to the question of defamation, not to the question of whether or not there was a sexual assault. Uh, okay, so take that part away, all right, which could be very significant. Now, you're pointing to a few other comments last night that uh, could impact the two DOJ criminal cases in which we are still awaiting potential indictment from the, uh, the DOJ. So let's start with January 6th. Uh, Caitlin asked Trump about the danger that was posed to his then Vice President, Mike Pence. Let me play that exchange. One person who was at the Capitol that day, as you know, was your Vice President, Mike Pence, who says that you endangered his life on that day. I don't do think he feel, was in any danger. Mr. President, do you feel that you owe him an apology? No, because he did something wrong. He should have put the votes back to the state legislatures, and I think we would have had a different outcome. You find that incriminating, explain. It's very similar to the testimony that was given to the January 6th Committee where he says Pence deserved it in the sense that he was put in danger, and then the answer is no, but he is responsible for having put himself in danger by not decertifying or trying to interfere with the certification of the election. Mm -hmm. He's saying it similarly, and also his lawyer says that to Pence's lawyer in the midst of the attack, Eastman says to uh, Greg Jacob, no, you all are responsible for this, because if your boss, Pence, had acted differently, there wouldn't be this violence. That's very incriminating, and mm -hmm. it also goes with him suggesting that he would pardon some of these people, even up to the Proud Boys, it's an endorsement of the violence in a certain sense, and I think that would be really important evidence that, in fact, the, the DOJ would use before a jury if they did bring us to that. All right, so that is significant. There's also the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case uh, that you think is front and center here. Uh, let me play uh, the exchange over the classified documents. Did you ever show those classified documents to anyone? Not really. I would have the right to. By the way, they were declassified really? after... Not, uh, not that I can think of. Let me just tell you, 